Good morning. My name is Susan David, and our text today is Matthew 21, 28 through 20, excuse me, 32. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which one of the two did the will of his father? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Good morning, friends. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Uh, happy Sunday. Uh, good morning to you folks who are online with us this morning as well. Uh, it's always good to be together, one body, even if we're in multiple places. Uh, so today we are uh, back in our series of stories that Jesus told. And this is, this is always an interesting story to me. <clears throat> it's, it's a very simple story. You know, among the parables, there's some that are kind of complex, and you're kind of noodling through, what does this mean, and how do I apply this? This one is really straightforward. It's a story about simple obedience and about uh, perhaps sometimes how we will, uh, we will write checks with our mouth, so to speak, that we're not always willing to cash with our body. Uh, but I, I wanted to do this one as part of this series. There's so many parables, but I wanted us to hit this one because I think it's particularly difficult for us in its simplicity, not difficult to understand, but the whole idea of obedience is a challenging one for us in our culture. Uh, granted, I mean, obedience is a challenge kind of whoever you are, wherever you are, uh, but uh, every culture has certain cultural dispositions to it and uh, makes you kind of better at some things, worse at others. And, and for ours, I think uh, obedience, uh, simple obedience to God is one of those things that has kind of fallen on hard times, you could say. Uh, I appreciate the way that, that uh, David Brooks kind of couches this. David Brooks is, is one of my favorite columnists. He writes for the New York Times. and um, He talks a lot about our cultural shifts, and particularly our cultural shifts in motivation has been a topic for him in his writing in the last few years. And he talks about how up until the mid-20th century, uh, the, the idea of duty was a very important part of American culture. Uh, what is it that I am obligated to do? What is it that I owe my neighbor? What is it that I owe my country? What is it that I owe my family? And this has been a, a dominant part of American culture as it has been of most cultures uh, throughout most of our history. But as, as the rise of this idea of the rugged individual uh, gained more and more traction and came into new expressions in the mid-20th century, this began to shift. And we started to move from a place of duty as a good to self-actualization as a good. And sometimes those two things uh, come into conflict with each other. Uh, it's not a bad thing altogether, of course. It's, it's good to have a robust sense of self. Uh, but, uh, and what David Brooks has referred to as the big me generation, 
Uh, as that has risen, we increasingly struggle with ideas like authority, ideas uh, uh, like obedience to those who, uh, like God, might have something to say over how we live. Uh, here's one example of this that, that both frightens me and tickles me. So there's this thing sociologists use called the narcissism scale. Okay? This doesn't mean if you score high on this, you're an actual narcissist, but it measures our, our, uh, our picture of self and how we, uh, how we think about our own worth. So one of the questions that Gallup asks on this narcissism poll, could be because of this. All right. See, if this thing goes funky and I need to get rid of it, just let me know. Uh, on this narcissism scale, they ask this question of high school seniors. And the question is, do you consider yourself very important? In 1950, 12% of high school seniors, when they took the survey, answered yes. I see myself as very important. In the year 2000, when they take the survey, 80% of high school seniors see themselves as being very important. In current day, 93%. Really interesting, isn't it? It's, it's kind of like the old thing, you know, it, is, is your child an above average student? And like all parents are like, yes, of course, they're above average in every way, which makes no sense because average means, it's that same sort of thing. But if, if we all think this highly of ourselves, this affects the way that we think about obedience to God or institutions or country or our obligation to neighbor, all these things are affected by this. Now, some of you are looking at me like you're not at all surprised by this. We're a very me-focused generation. We have been in the selfie, right? Instagram and Snapchat allow us to show each other how wonderful our lives are, or at least how wonderful we want others to think our lives are. But we are increasingly me-centered. Now, this has ramifications for us if we are seeking to follow Jesus, because obedience to Jesus' commands is central to what it means to be a disciple. Right, Matthew 28, this famous passage where Jesus is giving the church its instructions. He says that we're to go to all nations, we're to baptize them, and we're to teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. This is in the job description of what it means to be a believer in Christ, obeying what he commands. Uh, too often in our culture, we want to reduce this matter of being his disciple to just the first part. I put my faith in Jesus and I'm baptized. Or perhaps we don't even want to be obedient to that piece. We just want to put our faith in Jesus and then leave me alone and God will do what I want. Uh, it's, it's into this particular heart understanding that Jesus drops this parable of these two sons. Uh, and here's the way that maybe we'll summarize it this morning. This can be our headline. But Jesus says, in essence, it is better to be an irreligious person who obeys God than a religious person who does not. Better to be somebody who is irreligious but obeys than a religious person that does not obey. And we can frame it this way because Jesus is talking, as, as he's giving this parable, he's addressing the high priests and the religious elders is what we learned earlier in the context. And he's comparing them to the prostitutes and the tax collectors, those sinners that they would despise the most saying they've actually done better in this. When the word of God came to them, they repented, they changed, they obeyed. When it came to you, you resisted it. It says the irreligious people 
are beating the socks off of the religious people in this instance. And, and the determining factor, the way that Jesus evaluates this, the metric for determining who's doing better, is obedience when God gives them a command. Now, uh, obviously, much, uh, much weeping and gnashing of teeth, much anger on the part of the religious leaders on this. You know, they're saying, hey, we're the ones who are attending synagogue, we're tithing, we're learning the scriptures, all these things. Jesus says, well, you might want to reconsider what it means to be religious because you're missing and others are actually doing it better. So here's the question, friends. Uh, we all know if we have tried it, that obedience is difficult. So how do we become the kind of people who are able to normally and naturally obey the commands of Jesus? How can we become like, like the Apostle John, you know, who wrote in one of his writings in the New Testament that God's commands are not burdensome? How can we come to a place where we obey so naturally from the heart that that's something that we could say as well? Uh, Jesus gives us three practices that come out of this parable that we want to look at this morning as, uh, as we put ourselves under the word of God. So let's pray together, and we'll look at the scriptures. Uh, Father, we come this morning first just confessing that this is difficult for us. We are privileged people who live relatively comfortable lives. And it is incredibly easy for us to just forget about you or push you to the side. God, we pray that you would make us into people, Lord, who recognize our need for you, who recognize our need for heart change, who seek out your words and who seek to live by them. God, we need you for this. We can't muscle it out. We need you to do it. work in our hearts to bring change in us. Uh, so God, we ask you for that. And we come to the scriptures this morning as part of our worship, seeking to glorify you as we read your words and ask you to help us obey. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends, three practices that show up in this parable. If we are to become the kinds of people who are able to obey Christ well. The first one is this. It's don't let your obedience be slave to your emotions. Look at the first son here. Jesus starts the story this way. He says, there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, the son answers. But later he changed his mind anyway. Uh, now, um, that, that term in verse 29, I will not. Uh, various translations will, will render this in different ways. The Greek word there is, is thelo. And it's, it's a word that has to do with the will, has to do with our desires. If you're saying, in a Greek context, if you're saying, I want to go to In-N-Out for lunch today, it would be I, I thelo, In-N-Out, right? I desire that, I want that. The son is expressing here, not just refusal, but this is, this is him talking about what he wants, right? And some translations actually kind of put it that way. They'll, they'll translate this as, I don't want to. And so he doesn't. And as we come to this matter of obedience, that's perhaps the first barrier that we run into is our own will. 
What is it that I want? What is it that I will in this circumstance? And it, it's easier to see in the Greek because in both cases it's thalo, but when you get down to verse 31, uh, and we're talking about uh, the Father's will, it's the same word that's used. And so really what you have being set up here is a battle of the wills. The Son says, nope, that doesn't line up with my will. And the Father says, my will is for you to go to the vineyard. And the Son has to make a choice. Uh, I, I love this. I love the way this is framed because I feel like it's so honest, right? This is so right where we live, right? How often is that where we find ourselves with God? The command of God is clear. And our first reaction to that command is, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. And our emotions end up enslaving us. Our obedience becomes subservient, not to God, but to how we feel in any given moment. Right? Small ways and big ways. You're, you're watching TV at night, and the stomach is rumbling, and you're wanting a snack, and you're on your way to the kitchen, and as you're there, you sense the Holy Spirit whisper to you, be a good steward of your body. And you get to the kitchen, and you're looking around, and all you really see is that quart of ice cream. And you reach for it and think, I'll just get a bowl and take a small portion, a healthy amount. But part of you says, no, just take the, take the whole thing and the spoon and head back to the couch. And we say, I don't want to, God. I'm not in the mood to be a good steward of my body. You're out with friends and you're enjoying dinner, and you're, you're having drinks with dinner, and people are moving to their second and third glass of wine, and you know if you go there with them, you're going to be in a state where you're going to be confessing that sin to God later, and you're, you're battling in yourself, and you have to say, okay, God, I don't want to stop right now, but will I? It's the will. It's the desire. This is the first place where we engage. Or what about in those, those meteor places, those more difficult areas of the soul, where we're reminded of the words of Jesus, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And you're looking at that person you regard as an enemy, a person you hate or you feel hates you. Loving them in that moment, it's first, beyond anything else, it's first a question of the will. Forgive from the heart, Jesus says. Forgive as I forgave you. Well, how often do you want to? Right? Usually not. If we're hurt, it's not something we want to do. But obedience always starts here, at the level of the will. When my desires and the will of God come into conflict, which one wins? That's the moment of obedience. And that's, that's the first son here, right? The one that's commended. His emotions rise up and say, I don't want to do it. And he does it anyway. That's obedience. It's a choice, not a feeling. What do we do in that moment? Uh, obviously, we hear this, and, and my first reaction is probably yours, is, well, it's hard. It's difficult when I'm wanting something and what God wants for me. But here's the thing, friends. 
Uh, we can pray for strength in that moment, and we can practice obedience. We can practice it. And we get better at it as we do it. Because each time we say yes, we're creating space for God to work in us and begin to make that heart change. We're able to better move towards that kind of person who's able to more naturally obey. Uh, or this. this. This is, I think, our most 21st century response. But to say it's not authentic. I don't want to act in a way that's not the way that I'm feeling because that would be inauthentic. Of course, in one sense, that's true. But it, it neglects the reality that sometimes what we are authentically feeling is wrong and needs to be resisted. It's, it's only in a radically me-centered culture that we would even have that kind of a thought, that whatever I am experiencing internally is the thing that is right. In virtually every other culture throughout history, there's been a much better awareness that what's going on here is not necessarily the right thing. It's got to be weighed and teased out and explored before we just say yes to that thing. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he addresses both of these, kind of the difficulty and that, that issue of authenticity, that dissonance that we experience. Uh, listen to this quote. I love this. He says, very often, the only way we get to equality in reality is to start behaving as if you already had it. He's talking about character qualities here. He says that is why children's games are so important. Children are always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop. But all the time, they are hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of being grown-ups helps them to grow up in earnest. Now the moment you realize, here I am, dressing up as Christ, which is how the New Testament often puts this process, says it's extremely likely that you will see at once some way in which at that very moment the pretense could be made less of a pretense and more of a reality. You will find several things going on in your mind which would not be going on there if you really were a son of God. It says, well, stop them. Or you may realize that instead of saying your prayers, you ought to be downstairs writing a letter or helping your wife to wash up. Well, he says, go and do it. Right? In other words, Lewis is saying as we enter into this practice of obeying even when we don't feel like it, we begin to change and we begin to live more authentically into the reality that today might be a struggle, but as we, in Paul's words, train ourselves to be godly, it becomes more natural. It becomes more the norm. Friends, our feelings are fickle. And if our obedience is based on those feelings, our spiritual muscles will never harden. We have to pray and practice this matter of obedience. And pause here for, for just a sec, folks, and maybe ask yourself, is there a place the Holy Spirit is revealing to me where I find what I want is frequently out of line with what God is asking of me? Is there any place like that? Can I invite you in this moment, now as we're worshiping today, just to offer that to God, just to name it, to say this is one of those places, and Jesus, I need you to be working in me if I'm going to learn to obey you in this particular area. Uh, that's number one. 
If we're going to do this obedience thing well, we can't let our obedience be slave to our emotions. Second is this. It's remember whose will you are doing. Remember whose will it is that you are obeying. Verse 30, it says, Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two, Jesus asked, did the will of the father? The first, the answer. Now, the first son, right? The one who said, Dad, I'm not going. I'm not going to work in the vineyard, but then he went. So you can almost just kind of picture the process for him, right? I know I can at least. Maybe I relate to it well. But, uh, you know, the father comes to the son and is like, I need you to go to, to the field today. I need you to work in the vineyard. And the son's just like, no, I don't feel like working. I need a personal day, right? Um, but he keeps thinking. And, and it's, it's kind of hanging with him there. And it bothers him to the extent that he changes his mind. And he, he goes ahead and he goes. And, and we've got to imagine that, that part of what is weighing on him there is the fact that his father is the one who asked. And in that culture especially, to disobey one's father is a really big deal. It's not as big a deal here. Just ask my kids. Uh, but... Um, but in that culture, it really is a big deal. And to just flat out refuse your father, mm, man, that, that breaks so many cultural norms. But you contrast that. If you know, you've got the same son, he's in bed, he's looking forward to a day of not going into work, and some random person comes in and shakes him awake and is like, hey, you need to come into my shop today and work. You know, it's not going to have the same effect. The son's not going to go. It's the fact that the father is the one that is asking him, that moves him from a no to a yes. The factor that makes it compelling is the source that is asking him for this. And I imagine similarly with son number two, right? He doesn't go. He doesn't end up obeying, but he says he's going to. Why does he do that? I imagine it's because the father is the one who is asking. He knows he's supposed to say yes, even if he knows in his heart it's actually a no. He too, in his own way, is compelled by the one who is asking. If a random dude was to ask him, I'm sure it would be a much different response. And what Jesus is doing here, and it's, it's really common in the rabbis of his day, they actually called it the how much more argument. But the idea behind this is, if your earthly father asks you to do something and you wouldn't disobey your earthly father, well, how much more would you obey your heavenly father when he is the one who is asking you something? When the God of the universe is the one who is saying, this is my will, who are we to say no? Now, here's maybe another place where it gets tricky for us. And maybe this kind of gets mingled in and jumbled up with what kind of father I had and you had and maybe the way that we see God and, and how we imagine him as, as a father or as an authority figure, all those things kind of, kind of get mixed into this. But if, if we're able to step back a little bit and just think about, okay, if it is the will of the father that I'm being asked to do, there's a, a couple ways this could go. One, I, I could obey simply because he is an authority. And that's indisputable, right? 
uh, I think, religious person or non-religious person, if we agree that there is a God and he is in any sense a moral being, then he has a claim on our lives and on our do's and on our don'ts. That would be a very difficult thing to refute. So if that was our only motivator, and if we were just to say, okay, as a matter of duty, just because God is God, I'm going to say yes, that would be okay. That's, that's not a bad motivation, even though it falls a little oddly on our ears in our cultural moment. But there's another layer too, and you see this in scripture as well. And that's the idea that I love my father. And because of that, I wanna live in a way that pleases him. And my father loves me. And because of that, I can trust him. When he is telling me to do something, he only has my good in mind. You know, God has a love language. Right? Do you know this concept of love languages? Right? Some people's love language is quality time together. Others' love language is gifts. Others, it's physical affection. God has a love language, and it's obedience. Uh, John 14, 21. Hear this. I think we have a slide for it. Good. This is Jesus speaking. He says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. All right? The one who keeps my commands, he says, this is the one who loves me. This is how you say to me, I love you. And I wonder if maybe this is where we sometimes get tripped up. In the same way that the chief priests and the elders that Jesus was speaking to in his time and day get tripped up. Right? Sometimes we we think that our worship is the way we say I love you to God. And of course it is a way. Sometimes maybe we think our giving is the way that we do that. Sometimes maybe we think that the good things that we do for others is how we say I love you to God. And all these are a way. But if we omit obedience, we're missing God's love language. Isaiah chapter 1 says something very similar, and it's kind of a, a long diatribe. I encourage you maybe look it up later, but where God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's saying, I hate your religious assemblies because they aren't paired with obedience to my word. We miss all together, friends. We miss, if we miss this piece of obedience. Better, Jesus says, to be an irreligious person who obeys than a religious person who does not. This is where the rubber meets the road. Um, I, find, I find for me in this, maybe you'd find this is true for you as well, but one thing that really helps me here is reflecting on the character of God. Right? To remember whose will it is that I am doing, that I'm being asked to do, to reflect on who that God is helps me immensely. Because I think it helps me with the issue of trust. Right? If I am reflecting on who God is, if I am remembering his love for us, if I am remembering that he pursued me even when I was running from him, if I am remembering that he is the kind of God who would die in my place, well, that makes obedience a whole lot easier. One of my my personal practices in the last few months is I'm trying to use my car time better. Uh, and lately that means, it means worship music in my car. 
Uh, I'm much more inclined to uh, like have a podcast going. Or I just love content, right? What can I learn today is kind of my thing. But I'm learning there's times where I, I just need to reflect on the goodness of God. And so, you know, let's, let's throw on some, some Crowder or some Maverick City and let's just worship as we drive. Remember who God is. I find Sundays are really important for me in this. And this is, in fact, one could argue the primary purpose of God's command to bring us together on Sundays with word and sacrament. It's this weekly rehearsal of who God is. Right? Where we can't get more than seven days without, without kind of getting a little kick that says, oh, that's right, that's right. <laughs> that's who it is that I'm following. You know, our small group is really important for us in this. That there's a group of people that we travel with where we can remind each other of the goodness of God. It's very difficult to obey outside of this matter of remembering who it is, whose will it is that we are obeying. That's the second, friends, remembering whose will it is that we're doing. Here's the third. The third is this. It's don't mistake a profession of faith for actual faith. You catch that? Don't mistake a profession of faith for actual faith. Jesus said to them, <coughs> said, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you, the religious leaders. For John came, John the Baptist came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. Even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now, note here what Jesus is doing. It's really interesting that the language in the parable changes here. Where what we might expect to hear him saying here is that, that the, the tax, collector, tax collectors and the prostitutes, that they obeyed, right? Or, uh, uh, or at the end, he says, after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This, the word believe is used twice here, and it's used interchangeably with the word obey. Jesus is equating the two, the belief and the action. Uh, the way it's often put is that our actions, our obedience is the evidence of true faith. Right? And the contrast that he's setting up, the elders and the priests, they professed. Right? Their faith was something that, you know, it was out there all the time, loud and proud. They have this allegiance to God. They've got the t-shirt. We've got the bumper sticker. Everybody knows they are the religious people. They wear it as a badge of honor. But their obedience, and Jesus critiques them for this again and again, their obedience was selective. Where they felt like obeying God, they did. Where they didn't feel like obeying God, they did not. And the contrast that Jesus draws to the irreligious people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, when they were confronted with their sin, they turned. They repented, full stop, and started going the other direction. They realized their need to obey. The one group, the one group relied on saying they had faith. The other demonstrated that they had faith by being obedient. Listen to how John puts it in his letter to the churches, 1 John chapter 2. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. 
But if anyone obeys this word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Strongly put. It says if you're one who professes, but you don't act, then you're a liar. And John goes so far to call into question whether you know God at all. Uh, Don't get hung up on this in the wrong way. It isn't our obedience that saves us, it's our faith. But if it truly is a saving faith, it will result in obedience. If it doesn't, something's seriously broken. Something is seriously wrong. And the scriptures invite us to stop and to look at that in a sober way and ask, do I really know him? It's a hard word. Ironically, this can get more difficult the longer that you have been a Christian. Right? This is, I think, where the elders and the chief priests kind of found themselves. They've been religious people for a long time. And sometimes for us, if we get used to that being our identity, we get used to being forgiven, we get used to being accepted, we get used to this idea that I'm loved by God, that I can't screw that up, that I can't flaunt grace. This is true. But sometimes within that, there becomes a temptation to just sort of slide. We get worse at obeying the commands of Jesus rather than better. In contrast to the person who's maybe coming freshly to faith for the first time, And they are highly aware of their own sinfulness. And they take obedience very seriously. Does that make sense? Does anyone feel that? I mean, this is a real thing. Being religious can be an impediment to our faith. We have to be sure that we are continuing to walk in actual relationship and actual obedience to the one who calls us. And not simply resting on the fact that Yeah, I said yes to God one time way back then. The command of Jesus is to take up our cross daily and follow him. That means ongoing obedience in the life of faith. Uh, Jesus exemplified this. Uh, In John chapter 6, I don't have a slide for this one, but in John chapter 6, he says there, the reason I have come is to do the will of my Father. Jesus knew whose will it was that he was following. And we know at times that it it was difficult, that it conflicted with his emotions. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if there is any other way that we can do this. His emotions were telling him, go the other way. But he obeyed in spite of that. And clearly his understanding of faith was not just an intellectual assent. It was made complete in the actions that he undertook. <clears throat> uh, as we, we come in for a landing this morning, I uh, want to tell you a story from this weekend. Uh, I was in San Diego all weekend. Uh, got to do a vow renewal for a, a couple that some of you might know, Ryan and Allie Ash. They were part of our church in the very early, early years. but. Uh, the, the first summer that we were in existence as a church, I mean, we were 20 people in the living room of our house, and uh, we had these three couples in particular that were part of the church that were all pretty newly married, and they were all in really bad shape, uh, all right on the brink of divorce. 
And of those three, Ryan and Allie were the ones where if you'd asked me to put money on it, you know, they, they weren't going to make it. They were in, in pretty bad shape. The marriage was, was almost wrecked. Uh, Allie had actually moved out and moved back to Washington State. They were separated, and that, uh, it was not going well. Uh, well, uh, through a series of events, uh, they, they were rescued by God. This church was praying like crazy for them. Ryan ends up getting on a plane, showing up on her doorstep unannounced, uh, saying, I, I want to do this again. I need you to come back with me to Los Angeles, and let's try this again. And somehow God worked in Allie's heart where against all that would seem reasonable, she said yes, and she did. And they started this journey together and uh, found a great circle of friends and mentors that strengthened them. And, here they are 20 years later, and their, their life is so beautiful. Uh, they're flourishing. They have, a, they have a wonderful, healthy marriage. They've got these three ginormous man-children boys, you know, that, uh, that are running around there with this, these thick mops of curly blonde hair. Uh, they have an amazing ministry for almost 15 years now to married couples who are on the brink of divorce. They have... Uh, those two have seen more marriages saved through their lives than anybody else that I know. Uh, just an amazing, beautiful thing that God has done. And, and last night we got to celebrate that together with a vow renewal and, and tacos and local beer. It was a beautiful, beautiful occasion. But what if they had said no? Uh, I mean, you talk about their emotions running in a different way than the command of God. What if they had said no? And their obedience had been slave to their emotions instead of the other way around? What if they'd been indifferent to the will of God? What if they cared less about what the Father wanted for them and were so convinced in their own minds that what I want for myself is going to be the best thing for myself? What if they had been content to rest on the fact that when they were young children, they prayed to receive Christ? And they treated obedience after that as if it was something optional. What if, what if, they would have missed so much? The life that God intended for them, that plan A, that beauty, that flourishing, it would have been missed. God would have gone with them. I don't know how things would have gone, but I know it wouldn't have been this. And in following God's will, they came into beauty. And so many others have as well. Friends, what about you and I? Consider this morning, as we are worshiping together in song, and as we come to the communion table, consider, what is my level of commitment to obeying the teachings of Jesus Christ? What is my level of commitment to saying yes to God's will, even if it's feeling difficult? What is my level of commitment to becoming the kind of person for whom obedience to Jesus is as normal and as natural as breathing? Friends, it is not outside of our reach. Pray it. Practice it. And day by day, week by week, month by month, over the course of time, we will find 
that we are becoming those who are able to obey Jesus and not find it burdensome. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess the difficulty of this. And God, we pray that as we come to you this morning, that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us up and cause the fruit of your Spirit to ripen in our lives, that we would be marked and characterized by a character that looks like Christ. And God, may obedience to you be central in that. May we become those who are eager to follow your commands because we know your will for us is always best, that you are always good, that you never want anything but the best for us. God, cause us to trust in that. Cause us to raise our kids in a way that let them see that, that they would grow up in this path as well. God, we give you thanks, and we entrust ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, as we come to the Word of God, in the same way we also come to the table of God, and I want to invite you this morning to receive communion at the table of Jesus. Uh, at the communion table, we have a picture of really the entire message of the Bible summed up in this bread and in this cup. This idea that Jesus gave himself for us, and that when we put our trust in him, his blood washes away our sins. His body heals our imperfections. And that we begin to participate with him in, in the eternal life that he calls us to.